Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. In today's episode, Nate takes us through steps five, six, and seven, the process of disclosing the exact nature of our wrongs and asking God to remove our shortcomings. And now, here's Nate Larkin. We're down to, as I understand it, three weeks till the end of the semester, right? What we intended to do, what I intended to do when we started was to take 16 weeks, go all the way through the 12 steps from a Christian perspective and share with you what I've learned in my experience in recovery over the last 17 years. We got through step four and then uh, as I am prone to do, I got distracted and we wandered off into codependency for a couple of weeks. Now we've got uh, three weeks left and a bunch of steps. So what I'm going to try to do today is take us through steps five, six, and seven, all in one session. And for those of you who are not familiar with the steps, let me read you those three. Here's uh, step four, by the way, the one that we've been working on before we got lost in codependency is made a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Okay. Now here we are. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. That's step five. Step four and step five are generally understood to go together. Step four, we do the inventory. And step five, we share it with somebody else. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all our defects of character. And step six, which is generally understood to go with step five, humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. All right, let's begin with step five and this whole business of talking about our weaknesses, failures, sins, brokenness, clearly and specifically with another person. In March 18th of last year, Pope Francis stunned the crowd at St. Peter's Basilica. It was the first day of a 40-day festival of forgiveness. The church was full. There were 61 priests on hand to hear confessions, and there were confessionals all around the building. And then, as everybody was waiting, the Pope finally appeared. Now, he wasn't wearing the, the robe with the stole and the miter and the stuff that his predecessors have worn. That, you know, that clothing, really, it was the clothing of royalty back in medieval times. Instead, he was just wearing a, a white tunic. And the master of ceremonies, the guy in charge of everything, motioned the Pope toward the confessional where he would hear confessions. And Francis waved him off. And to everybody's surprise, he walked over to another confessional and, uh, and, and bowed before another priest and took three minutes to make his own confession. And then that very surprised priest prayed for the Pope. And in so doing, he made a very powerful statement a very important corrective to our theology of confession. And if the Catholics need a corrective to their theology of confession, the Protestants need one even more. If you've read Thomas Cahill's fascinating book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, have you heard of that book? What a great story, an amazing story, a little known story about, it's phenomenal to see how the gospel has traveled around the globe through the centuries and how God has always had a people 
It was something that, that uh, Pastor Cassidy woke us up to three weeks ago, I think, when he talked about the rise of Christianity now in uh, parts of the world other than our own. We think Christianity is in decline when it's actually growing. So uh, you've probably heard the story of St. Patrick, who uh, around the year 405, he was a kid, he was in Britain, and uh, across the uh, Irish Sea there was uh, in, in the wilds of Ireland. Ireland was a fierce and untamed place very pagan, uh, under the domination of the Druid priests, who practiced, by the way, a human sacrifice. In fact, when the Romans tried to invade Ireland, before the Romans arrived, one of the, and, and we know this actually not just from legend, but from archeological research, because we've actually found the body and all the ceremonial stuff around it. One of the princes of Ireland offered himself as a sacrifice to the gods on behalf of the people. And he was executed in a very ceremonial way. Three blows to the head, three cuts to the throat. So they're a very fierce people. So Patrick, he's a young man, he's 16 years old. Uh, he's out tending sheep and some Irish slave hunters come ashore and catch him and they drag him off to Ireland. He's sold as a slave. He winds up herding pigs for six, six years. And during that time, uh, his relationship with God really deepens. He spends an awful lot of time in prayer. Six years later, he manages to escape. Actually, he got a vision. <laughs> God told him a ship was coming, and, and he escaped and went down to the seaport. And sure enough, the ship was there. And, and he made it back to England, back to Britain. Of course, his family couldn't believe he was back. Nobody ever wanted him to leave again, but he had this, the, the Lord told him that he now had a calling to the people who had enslaved him. He didn't go back right away. In fact, he took 23 years in preparation, went to France and studied and served and found mentors and learned how to be a pastor and a church planter. And then, in his mid-40s, returned to Ireland. And uh, it's phenomenal what he and some others accomplished in the rapid conversion of that population. And he was able to tell the, tell the Irish, those who had become accustomed to human sacrifice, no more sacrifice is needed. The final sacrifice has been made. And he established, he traveled throughout, especially the north of Ireland, and he established monasteries and churches he was a very effective church planter. Now it's interesting, at about time that he's planting the church in the wilds of Ireland, the church in Rome is collapsing. Rome is sacked by the Goths in 410, and in 476, Rome falls. Now the Roman Empire still continues for another thousand years all the way east in Byzantium, but in the west, it's gone. Rome is gone, the Roman church is gone. That amazing system of Roman roads that stretched all the way to Britain. Now there's nobody to take care of it. There's no money. The roads fall into disrepair. The Roman legions are no longer there to make the place secure. There are climate changes, by the way, which are bringing tribes from the north farther south in search of food. Europe becomes now a very dangerous place. Europe enters what we call the Dark Ages where people who once spoke a Latin 
a common language because they don't communicate with each other anymore. That common language degenerates into French and Spanish and other Latin-based languages. And the light of learning goes out. Uh, people can't travel to learn anymore. The, uh, the universities are not functioning, except in Ireland. Strangely enough, in Ireland, scholarship blossoms. And there is such fervor in the Irish church and so it's the Irish who really preserve the literature of Western civilization. And they, there is a tremendous spiritual revival in the seventh century in Ireland. And it starts with some monks who take seriously James's instructions, Apostle James' instructions, James 5.16, to confess your sins one to another, that you may be healed. And so these monks begin to whisper their confessions to one another. And there is such an amazing spiritual transformation. The fervor is amazing that Ireland actually begins to now to send missionaries out into Europe. The Irish send missionaries all over. They send them to France, they send them to Spain, they send them to Germany. <laughs> it's the Irish who evangelize the German tribes who Centuries later, it'll be a German, you know, who leads the Protestant Reformation. And they sent missionaries to Italy. When all of this fervor and uh, excitement and spiritual life makes it w its way back to Rome, this exhausted church in Rome, the Irish monks teach the Christians in Italy and in the Roman church how to confess to one another. Well, the church then institutionalizes the practice priests kind of take charge of it. Uh, so rather than all believers confessing one to another, laity confesses to clergy, but still there is some confession going on. And not to say what the Irish brought was perfect. The Irish, they were kind of like the Marines of the Christian faith. So what these monks in Ireland also did was they developed kind of this code of penitence, like Okay, you confess this sin, let me look at the list and see what you got to do to, okay, here's what you got to do to make up for it. So, for example, if a monk had a dream, a sexual dream about a woman and confessed it to his brother, and then for penitence, he had to go a week on bread and water. That was kind of like the bottom. If he got a nun pregnant, six years bread and water. Okay. So this whole business of confession, and this is kind of the human instinct, isn't it? This whole business of confession kind of got wrapped up then with penitence, punishment, and fixing. All right. In the Samson Society, we have this weekend that we sometimes do called 48 Hours of Frankness, uh, where we invite guys really to be radically honest for 48 hours, and we try to take them all the way through this process in 48 hours at kind of 10,000 feet. It's, a, it's not a retreat, it's an intensive. It's an intensive 48 hours. Yeah, not to ruin anybody's surprise. You don't need to be surprised. But on the last day, one of the last things we do, we have this thing, this exercise we call the secret. And I remember now the first time we did it. We had guys from 16 states in the room. My, one of my brothers had come and hung out. My, he's a retired cop. And he was connecting with these guys, loving these guys. We're walking up to the chapel for the last 
session and my brother turns to me and he says, you know what? I think these are the greatest guys in the world. I mean, it's only been 48 hours, but we're tight. And uh, we're trusting each other. So uh, the session begins, and here's how the session goes. We kind of describe our responsibility to carry one another's burdens, to bear uh, that love covers a multitude of sins, and that sometimes plays out in our carrying each other's secrets so that nobody has to carry his own alone. And then uh, we play a song, a great song by Andy Gullihorn called The Secret. And uh, one of the guys who's leading goes up front and he says, uh, if you look in your packet, you'll see a card that says The Secret on it. Take it out. Don't put your name on it. What I'm going to invite you to do is write down your most shameful secret, or at least the most shameful one that you can commit to paper. Push yourself a little. Write it down. When you're done, fold it up bring it up here and put it in the basket in the front. So we all did that. And then somebody else came up and took the basket, shook it all up, and placed it back on the table and said, okay, uh, all right, here's what we're going to do now. We're going to come back up. I'm going to ask you to reach in and just pick up somebody's secret. Come up here to the mic and read it. And then let that brother know, whoever he is, you're going to keep that card and you're going to pray for him. I thought I was prepared for what I would hear because I'd heard quite a lot of confessions. I was not prepared. And I would venture to say that if we did it in this church today, none of us would be prepared. I started looking around the room saying, how do we function? How, how has everybody lived? How did they get here? How, how do we do this? And it was especially powerful for those in the room who had never faced it, never actually said it out loud, never heard somebody else say it, and never got grace in the saying. You know, there is a, there's a reason that I did not confess my sexual activity in church, and that I, I, I never did until getting into recovery in the basement of the church while all the good people are gone. Because I... I had seen how terrified we Christians typically get in the presence of sin and brokenness. You know, and here's the terrible thing. What we try to do to foster authentic community typically in the church is we, is we have small groups and we encourage people to get together and share and be honest. I was in small groups for years, usually as the leader. But as well-intentioned as we are in these groups, here's what, here's what tends to happen, in my experience at least. Somebody tests the water a little bit with a bit of confession. They take our rhetoric of grace at face value and somebody confesses something. And usually we shade it. It's in code. It's not, right? But we show the tip of the iceberg. And then it tends to go south. Either the focus shifts to that person and everybody wants to prescribe and fix uh, or, or, or punish. Or, and here's something even more deadly, everybody takes a deep breath and we move on to another subject. And we pretend like he or she never said it. And the message is, 
don't go there. And then the small group becomes a place where we just bring our acceptable self. And we carry that struggle, that secret struggle, that pain, that secret pain, all alone. Now it's even worse, in my experience, because I have to hide it from people I'm supposed to be close to. We have to do it better, and we have to do it smarter. And I, I love the way, actually, the step five works. The way it's done typically in 12-step recovery is you, you work your fourth step, and you work it with the help of a sponsor, and you get some guidance. All right, let's, let's do a fear list. Let's do a resentment list. And then comes the time, and it, it, the advice is sometimes given, by the way, to make an appointment to do your step five as you're starting your step four. Give yourself a deadline. It helps get you through step four. But be wise in selecting who you're going to do a step five with. Because not everybody can handle it. Not everybody can step out of that reactive, I don't know what it is, moralistic, evangelical, you know, terrifying thing. Find somebody who's done a step five of their own. Somebody who's had that head-snapping, bone-crushing collision with their own depravity. Somebody who's been given a huge helping of grace. Somebody who can listen empathetically and, and truly mediate to you the grace of God. It helps to have somebody, by the way, who's not... It's not a good idea to do this with a spouse, for example. Uh, you can actually re-traumatize a spouse by getting detailed on your confession. And sometimes there are spouses who somehow think that there's going to be peace of mind in just getting all the details, so they'll mine for information, thinking if they just know everything, they'll feel better. It works actually in the opposite direction. I'm, I'm grateful Allie knows. She knows all the categories of my sin and unfaithfulness and, and brokenness. She knows it all. She doesn't know a lot of detail and hasn't asked for a lot of detail, and as a result, she's not haunted by a lot of ghosts. But I'll tell you what, I did have to and still have to get specific with people who I trust in giving my confession. Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another person the exact nature of our wrongs. There is power in that. See, what I want to do is I want to give kind of a vague, global, categorical confession. You know, it's funny. Um, sometimes I go, I speak a lot, and I always speak out of my story. That's what people want me to do. And, but there'll always be in a large, if I'm talking to 500 or 1,000 or a couple thousand guys, there'll be some guys who come up to me afterwards, and they're very apologetic. They feel like they have to apologize to me because they're not sex addicts. Yeah, so they'll go, you know, they'll still go, I'm sorry, I just, I don't have, they can tell that my story resonates with a lot of guys in the room, but it doesn't hit them, right? And so what I'll get honest is this, okay, look, I, I don't, that's not my struggle. You know, but, you know, I, I, I have my struggle too. And I want to say, really? Could we possibly get more specific? <laughs> You know, now that you've admitted that, that the war isn't over, can you tell me what the fight's about? Can you tell me where the front line is? 
today? Can you tell me how long it, it's been since it moved? And actually, can you tell me whether there's anybody there with you? Because if there isn't, I don't have to ask how you're doing. I know you're losing. So I, I remember being gently pressed by a guy as I first started. I'm doing my fifth step, you know. And God, it was kind of like pre, it wasn't the formal time. It was another time I was in conversation with a guy, a sponsor. And I, you know, I said, well, I, you know, I had a slip. He said, yeah, what'd you do? Well, I looked at porn. Okay. What kind of porn? Oh, uh, you know, you know, like dirty pictures. <laughs> well, yeah, I get that. I get that. What kind of porn? And he asked me a few more questions that made me feel, initially, I, I felt this combination of shame and relief. He didn't have a prurient interest. He wasn't getting off on getting the answers from me. But he knew that I needed to get more specific. And a good fifth step is specific, not just about behaviors, but what, and the other ways in which um, that uh, drive gets manifested. A good fifth step doesn't just focus, for example, on you know, your medication of choice. For me, that would be sexual acting out. My good fifth step, uh, and it's about time, frankly, I've, I've realized in preparing to share this with you that it's about time for me to do another fifth step because I'm getting some more clarity on my brokenness. Uh, my sin seems a lot, I, I recognize more of it now, which means the gospel is bigger, which means my for forgiveness is greater. But it really is time for me to do some more house cleaning. A good fifth step will also talk about the ways in which I neglected and passively abused my wife and kids, or how I took advantages of, the, of those I was in business with, uh, how those I was supposed to be ministering to I was using for my own advantage. And there is something so cleansing about being able to sit down with a brother or a sister. This is best not done in groups. I, I, and it, sometimes I just get mad at, at the church. When I hear stories of people who have made a private confession and then have been dragged in front of the congregation and forced to confess to everybody, that public shaming, it's that old Puritan impulse. You know, you've seen those pictures of the, you know, the stocks, they put everybody in the, sh in, the, in, in the square. That was supposed to stop sin. We're going to shame people out of it. We don't have stocks anymore. We, we shame through social media. But the shaming still goes on. And it's as destructive as it ever was. And the church has got to stop engaging in that behavior. It's my privilege now to hear the confessions and carry the burdens of my brothers. And I'm glad that I have safe places to go. And Allie is glad that I have safe places to go. She and I have very honest conversations, but when it comes time, she, God did not call her or build her to carry the weight of my daily confessions. So anyway, that is, that's a, that's a step five. You do a good solid step four, or is the best you can do at this point in your journey, and then sit down, actually share it with another person, and, and know that God is in the room. This is where the reality of the body of Christ 
sets in. That in speaking to my brother, I am also speaking to Christ. That wonderful theme that the pastor spoke about so beautifully this morning. Now, once we've done a step five, we're moving, ready now to move on to step six, which almost sounds like it isn't a step. Six and seven uh, are sometimes referred to as the transformation steps. <laughs> it's, it's a bigger step than it appears. It, it, here's the word. Let me read it again. Here's the wording again. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. We actually have to make ourselves ready for change. Because as miserable as we are in our brokenness, in our twisted ways of coping and self-soothing and you know, <laughs> surviving, I mean, as painful as they are, they are familiar. They are what we know. And sometimes the thought of just giving up that behavior <laughs> is terrifying. I know it's killing me. I know I always feel bad afterwards. I know I'm hurting other people, but it's what I know. It's, it's what I do, and I don't know what I would do if it were gone. How would I deal with life if it were gone? It's kind of like that question that, the, that Jesus posed to the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, right? The guy had been there for years and years and years. What was Jesus' first question to him? Do you want to be healed? It's a big question. We're ready to have God remove all these defects of character. The greatest mistake we can make, and so I have done it, so many of us do it, it's part of this desperate urge to be a good person, is we take the inventory and we turn it into a to-do list. Right? So now I have identified all my faults and I'm going to rededicate myself to overcoming them. This is how we tend to, when we try to sanctify ourselves, right? I make a new plan. I commit to try harder. I do try harder. I fail. After a while, I pick myself up. I make a better plan. Rededicate myself, right? That's not what this is about. We turn recovery into such drudgery, into such slavery, uh, when we imagine that we are the ones who are doing the transformation. This is where the rubber hits the road on our theology of transformation. Who sanctifies us? Christ does. Here, these words. From Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul is describing this process of transformation, of sanctification. And he says that we are not transforming ourselves, we're being transformed. We're being changed. We cannot change ourselves. We can only be changed. So this is the toughest thing to do. If I'm not careful, I feel so bad after my step four and I, and I see how bad I've hurt everybody. I want to recommit and get back in the fight 
that I've never been able to win and rededicate myself to doing it right this time. That's not, that, that's not, what, that's not the gospel, it's not recovery. Recovery is saying, all right, this time I'm going to become completely ready to have God remove my defects of character in his time. In the meantime, I'm going to stop panicking at the sight of my sin. I'm going to stop lying about it to myself and everybody else. I'm going to stop hiding it. I'm going to do my level best to walk in the light daily and trust that as God shines the spotlight of the Spirit on areas of my life that He wants to change, I am going to agree, I'm going to allow Him to do it, I'm going to let Him do it, I'm going to wait for the miracle. It sounds crazy, but if there has been any transformation in my life, and my wife tells me there has been, it hasn't been because I have worked harder. It's because I've come to trust Christ and the body of Christ more and have committed more to a lifetime, a lifestyle of radical honesty. And now just trust that God's going to do the work. So that step six is became willing for God to remove my defects of character and then step seven, humbly ask Him uh, to remove our shortcomings. This places us back uh, in the position where we belong. We're not independent moral agents. We are beloved creatures who need a savior, broken creatures who need healing. And when we stop trying to uh, save ourselves, when we get down off the cross, when we let the Savior save, then we become recipients of and channels of grace, salvation, and healing. There will always be an impulse within moralistic communities, and the church is not the only moralistic community. I mean, you go on the internet today, even though the increasing number of people say that they have rejected uh, Christianity and the institutions of the church, it's a highly moralistic culture out there. Everybody condemning everybody else. So there will be this moralistic impulse that will try to push you back into self-effort and to living by self-propulsion and to work again for self-justification. As Christians, we must always encourage one another toward the gospel. We cannot justify ourselves. It is spiritually dangerous for us even to try. And here's the thing, the more aware I am of my sin, the more open I am to admitting it and walking in the light with other people, the more an agent of healing I become. The more I'm willing to talk about my sin in the present tense, to glorify Christ instead of myself, um, the more I become a channel of healing and the same is true for all of us. Let's stop trying to fix each other. Let's stop trying to fix ourselves. And let's allow God to do what He desires to do for us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com 
or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.